Tonight's episode ran a little long, uh, over an hour and a half, so we divided it into two chunks. This is part one of a two-parter, focusing on urban conflict and urban warfare. Really more of a continuation of our Hot Zone episode from a few weeks back. Uh, hope you all enjoy. Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconis fan podcast broadcasting, for now, from ASAF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. The Bullmore Bowling Alley has temporarily closed its doors, well, sealed its primary and secondary airlock. No specifics yet on the cause of shutting down our only tourist attraction, but it's likely due to the potentially lethal combination of bowling balls and a remarkably low escape velocity. Unless the rumors are true that Bullmore installed one of TTI's retired living pin setters, I, I really don't know. I didn't do it. And the rumors are malicious. There may be cameras. This week's episode is episode 23, Urban Conflict. So it's not urbane conflict? Well, it is actually urbane conflict. I mean, if you're engaging in open warfare in the veil, you know, there's going to be some... I'm just saying, the, the way I dress will be very different based on which it is. Well, you have to get the gun that accessorizes really well with your heels. Mm -hmm. So we'll open with some news about HSD's Kickstarter and their creative contest and its lucky winners. And I've got some donors to thank. We'll hit our topic and then and then what the hosts think is cool this week. But first, I'd like to take a moment to get to know our hosts, Wines, Ashtar, and I'm Corbeau. Guys, I'd like it if you could gaze into the future of fashion. What do you see the young and trendy wearing during hot zone lockdowns? Flashing orange LED weave. Oh, nice. Yeah. Get that floor length. Holographic smokescreen belts they can't shoot what you can't see and you don't have to wear pants <laughs> what color does that come in whatever color you want nice i'm going with bulletproof high heels designer or department it's all printed it just comes out of the printer <laughs> it's whatever you pay the extra money for i don't think they sell generics and buy spots anymore The big news from Ixodraconis is still the successful, quite successful Kickstarter. Over the next three months, Sev will be releasing first the editor's copy of the PDF of Sound and Silence, and then later on the official PDF and, and print-on-end books for all of his backers. More information on the Kickstarter website. But that's kind of old news. What I'm really excited about this week is our generous donors who have pitched in to buy us a new home. We love you. We do. Thank you. So thank you so much to Clay, to Sammy, to Ghost091, and Rage the Mage. Together they have chipped in to buy us a shiny new space station. So if you hear any construction noise in the background, that's the sound of us shutting down the studio. It is not the neighbors repairing their house because the neighbors are in a partial vacuum. I have a room now. <laughs> It's not going to be much bigger, actually. We didn't make it all the way to the blue sky, which is my, my goal. I suspect we're going to be sharing the space with a lot of freeloaders soon. Um, I'm still really excited. It's going to be a fun new environment and a fun new conceit for our podcast. In other news, 
the winners for the HSD Creative Contest were announced uh, last week on Sammy's weekly game streaming session. And we are very happy to be one of the winners. Poor Sammy had to deal with the full catalog of our episodes. Oh, dear. I didn't ask her to listen to every single one of them. She chose to listen to every single one of them. And do we thank him for that? <laughs> we, we, I guess we do. To be honest, we haven't listened to every no. single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that must have been quite... That must have been quite a lot of coffee on her part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you so much, Sammy. We're really excited to have been a part of that contest. And uh, I've already received Wines' birthday present, printable mini of a hyena wearing very sturdy combat pants, which he's already seen because, surprise, surprise, he reads my Twitter. <laughs> I didn't know that. I really didn't. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. It's neat to be feeling like we're kind of a part of the AGSD world as it rolls forward into its next new millennium, new edition. <laughs> We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. This episode's topic is urban conflict. It's really part two of the episode on uh, Hot Zones that we ran a few weeks ago. I think that was episode 19. Or five minutes ago, if you're just now catching up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Although there was, there was still another episode wedged in there somewhere, so an hour and a half ago. Ask Sammy. She's listened to all of them. <laughs> so in many ways, the Hot Zone episode kind of informs this. The primary textbook standard situation for urban warfare, urban violence in the HSD setting is the Hot Zone, a time when uh, smaller sections of a corp town go to war against each other. So it's almost synonymous with the concept of urban conflict in this game. So if I start using those words interchangeably or referring to something only in the context of a hot zone, that'd be the main reason because it really mostly makes sense in that context. The hot zones really fill the need for kind of dark, gritty, urban bloodshed and heroics. So question one would be what typifies urban conflict? Uh, two books that I've been reading rather heavily uh, are The Art of Darkness, a book on urban deception, and Street Smarts, U.S. government textbook on intelligence gathering in urban situations. Both really useful. I'll recommend them. I will definitely link them in the show notes. So looking at the elements that kind of typify and make up an urban warfare scenario, you've got really high levels of non-combatants on the field in HSD. That would be the vectors on the street, the employees don't really want to be involved, innocent bystanders, people pretending to be innocent bystanders, in general, the general masses of, not humanity, but whatever passes for it. Mm -hmm. The high amount of valuable infrastructure in the field, uh, buildings that you're not supposed to blow up, public art, monuments, TTI facilities, don't ever blow up a TTI facility, the fallout is horrible. Literal infrastructure, the roads, the power. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the stuff that keeps the city running. Uh, you really shouldn't explode that. And also encountering the enemy at very, very close range. Yeah, there's a certain claustrophobia involved in this. You're dealing with alleys and cramped areas. Tons of cover. Absolutely. And probably limited intelligence about where the enemy is. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's lots, lots of places to hide. Okay. Possibly the other kind, too. Pulse. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the very multidimensional nature of the battlefield is a big one. Um, lots of obstacles, lots of terrains, narrow, tight passages, uh, cluttered streets, so many positions for snipers. And also local knowledge. Uh, if you're fighting in a foreign city, the people who are native to the place know the place a lot better than you do. And that can make a huge difference. 
the Streetwise book talks about uh, terrain as an issue, and they kind of talk about you know various possible terrain obstacles, streets and things like that. Then they say that you really need to look at the social geography of the place as its own form of terrain with many analogies to the list of obstacles, opportunities, <laughs> traps, etc. So yeah, the, the social landscape is something that you, as a likely outsider, aren't going to know. That assumes you're kind of going the IRFP mercenary route. You may be one of the citizens of this, um, of an area that's being hit by conflict, and that'd be a really great kind of origin story for our party. And then you might actually have some working knowledge of the ground and the terrain mm -hmm. and the social niceties. And while you're talking about terrain, the social terrain or the physical terrain, the the physical terrain has a very distinct difference from a lot of the 2000 era conflicts in that there's a huge amount of vertical space. You have just within these standard buildings, most of the buildings within urban area are going to be several floors. Each of those floors are going to have access and windows. And then you have the rooftop above that. When we start talking more complex urban vectorscapes, you're going to have much, much larger buildings, which really tightens the amount of visibility you have, restricts people to hallways, which are very narrow shooting halls with no cover. And then once you start getting high enough, larger buildings are going to have skyways to other buildings, which means that the streets are not only going to be the route to move around, mm -hmm. you can move around above the street level, under the street level, or especially within vector kind, it's not really that difficult to get a enough of a jump or boost just to hop from building to building. And that's particularly true on Mars, which has this low gravity, which really affects its architecture. Mar Mars builds up. That's the uh, planet where you get the most bird vectors hopping from level to level. It's mm. very Jetsons. Kind of paradoxically, while the city builds up and up and up, this really restricts aerial access to the uh, to the zone. So if you're planning on going in on a armored skiff with 10 or 20 or 40 or 80 support troops, you may not have the opportunity because there's going to be buildings and sidewalks in the way and flying bird people. Parallel to that is the idea of restricted rules of engagement, which uh, would be don't shoot into civilians, your limited line of sight, your limited access to open fields to, <laughs> to have standard combat scenarios. Uh, short range detection, I think Wine's talked on. Very high logistical requirements also kind of typifies urban environment conflict because of uh, the strong needs of like mapping, difficult supply routes. You can't simply have things driven to you or moved in and out of an area because there's so many narrow passages, so many opportunities for those stuff, that stuff to go wandering. Particularly in the HSD universe, we've got a really strong communication grid, which that's just that's kind of part of the game universe in general. The, the area is constantly surveilled, but in a deep hot zone slash serious warfare zone, you can't necessarily expect that'll be the case. So you'll either have massive surveillance or a lot of chaos as the communication infrastructure comes down in part or in whole uh, and the screaming mobs of Twitter deprived vectors in the streets that would result from that. And while you touched on rules of engagement, rules of engagement are going to cover you know, certain aspects of keeping in a more urbane warfare. But oftentimes this will also start restricting what kind of arms and armor will show up on the battlefield. Mm. If this is deeply urban and a lot of the corporate towns that are in the conflict have a certain interest in the infrastructure, you're not going to be bringing the large power armor or the weapons that start punching through walls. At least not get caught doing it. Right. Um, or 
if one side starts to bring that, that starts to gain an escalation that gets out of a hot zone, out of some of the urban warfare and gain into a little bit more unrestricted, where either escalation is going to start happening or the whole thing is going to start getting shut down harshly. Mm-hmm. In the kind of bizarro world of the hot zone, I, I think the words urbane warfare kind of makes sense because you are working with local employees and things like that. You're trying to be a minimally disruptive to the cityscape itself. And ultimately, you're on the side of the civilians, theoretically. Well, you're on the side of the corporations, which theoretically invest in the civilian population. So not only do you have to not have a large body count on the side, but you need to kind of belong to a degree. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to build the connections that you need to get the information, get the layout, get the logistics and intelligence that you need. Got to blend. Civilian interaction is kind of a major part of the urban scenario as well because you don't know well there's not really a strong difference between citizen and employee in hsd and the hot zone scenario is small corp versus small corporation where employees are put in the line of fire or choose to be put in the line of fire additionally if there's open warfare in someone's hometown then the civvies might be very tempted to take up arms against both sides of the conflict. Or if they're very passionate about their home corporation, they they may defend their local Starbucks in defense of against all comers. Uh, you don't know necessarily what, what side the civilians are going to take, but that's a great place for a character to really stretch his economics and community stat blocks. You may not realize that when you start buying donuts there, you're drawn into the donut wars as a combatant. (laughs) (laughs) One concept that was really interesting for me in the uh, Street Smarts book, and one that I've been hearing in the news more often, is the concept of ground truth, which I think deserves some exclamation. The idea of ground truth is there's the world that the high-level administrators see, the generals see, the uh, people that are mobilizing the troops see, but the lived reality on the street is significantly different. In a recent Middle East horror story, a uh, ancient mosque was taken down. It was basically held hostage by terrorists, and as they were driven out of the city, they destroyed it, just, just to destroy it. The psychological effect of this kind of ancient landmark was huge. It's something that perhaps the leaders didn't see coming, but people that lived there that was part of their lives would have seen. Kind of a, a casualty is not just a number, but is a, a person. And that's another part of the, the idea of ground truth is what are the people experiencing that are part of the battle versus what does upper management understand of the scenario? A large book could be spent expanding on that concept, and I'm kind of struggling with it myself. <laughs> but it's it's a, a useful term to kind of think of these different layers of perception of the event. That's a, another one in recent news is the in the recent Charlottesville violence. Mm-hmm. The media is describing the left and the right as both engaging in violence uh, as part of maybe parody, balanced coverage, etc. But if you listen to the interviews from the people that are there, the left side is saying they did not involve themselves in this. They weren't violent. The right is probably saying similar things at times. And the actual reality, you know, we can't tell from our distant orbit of Mars for sure. And uh, a lot of people may never see it. I forget which which book it was, but it had a uh, phenomenal, very military acronym. 
the acronym is OCOKA, I guess Osoka, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, which is a five-letter acronym that works out to the entire sentence of observation and fields of fire, concealment and cover, obstacles, key terrain, and avenues of approach. So if you can memorize that simple acronym for that 27-word sentence, wow. you'll have a very strong knowledge of how to prepare intelligence in the urban battlefield. I'll write that one down because it's not intuitive from the acronym itself, nope. but that kind of covers a lot of the um, idea of vectors of approach, concealment, protection, etc. For, for some reason, I'm remembering um, Steve Galachi's explanation. People asked him in the sci-fi universe, why are there no giant robots? And he quoted, I guess it's a precept of modern warfare. If you can see it, you can hit it. If you can hit it, you can kill it. That's intuitive. I like yeah. that. The entire table is nodding now. So let's look a little bit at tone and mood in your campaign. This is kind of where the GM is going to live. I think before you unpack your horrible swath of urban destruction, it's good to ask yourself how lethal is your game typically? Are your players expecting to have a high body count? Um, are they prepared for the idea of losing their special snowflake? Are they excited at the prospect of pulling out their weaponry? <laughs> or or, or, or their backup more, character? <laughs> or are they more interested in avoiding that kind of conflict? Yeah, what kind of heroism are they going for? Uh, Action-oriented, uh, integrating with the city populace and creating a resistance force? Uh, do they even want to engage in this? Are they more interested in mysteries and exploration and space? And that's not just... What are the characters built for? What are the characters going to? That is very much what are the players sitting around the table interested in and what kind of tone and feel is the GM running as a game? Mm -hmm. If your HSD campaign to date has been just running through some of the supplemental campaigns they are coming through, Hot Zones probably fit right in. If you've looked at the supplemental campaigns and kind of shied away for a more narrative-driven uh, story, then use a little bit more care when introducing hot zones. Well, and if that's the case, then the threat of violence might be a lot more real for your PCs as well, because they're not used to uh, having guns leveled at them in a meaningful manner. Kind of taking that a little bit further into the game world, uh, how lethal do your vector citizens expect their lives to be and their world to be? Are they, you know, are we fighting in the Vale or the uh, Olympus Mon shopping center? Is this an area where people expect to see guns in the street or would they be deeply startled by this? And the conflict between these two ideas, between the tension of how lethal is your setting normally and uh, how, how cheap is life can present some real dramatic moments. But again, hot zones aren't static by any means. You can dial down to a almost non-lethal hot zone with very restrictive rules of engagement, or you can start getting in somewhere that has been escalating and growing out of proportion, out of control, or somewhere that's getting out into some of the outer boundaries where the megacorps don't have quite a firm control. And these can really start getting very lethal and much more, much closer to an, an actual modern warfare war. Yeah, the areas where the buildings are kind of shiny and recently printed are going to be different than the areas that are continually under, quote, under renovation, unquote. And, uh, more showing like the District 9 style slums. Mm -hmm. You say that, but it doesn't necessarily have to play that way. The 
gangs that are going to be running the slums are probably going to have just as tight a control over their vectors, over their lower ranking members, if not more, than your local donut shop. The local donut shop doesn't live in a hot zone every day where a going down into the gangs of the slums, you live a lot closer to a hot zone. So when it erupts, it's not as unusual. I've kind of been wondering about this since our hot zone episode. Most vectors at some point, probably two or three times a year, are going to be inconvenienced by hot zone in some way. Maybe just their standard route home is going to be disrupted and they have to take some unpleasant detours and it adds two hours to their travel time. Maybe their favorite coffee shop gets blown up because Starbucks. But I suspect that the nice polished areas of the Vale do not have to deal with the same level of destruction as uh, a more rundown and soon-to-be-repurposed area of a Marsco town that's kind of on the edges, or even one that's bordered by two different corporations that kind of share some territory. It, it just doesn't seem likely that an area with lots of money is going to have to deal with these inconveniences. That's just the nature of reality as I understand it. Because a poor area can't afford to have police. Yeah, and they're more likely to be pushed out by another corp taking direct action. I would almost counterpoint that and stop me if I'm jumping ahead here. No, but no. in a certain sense, especially within the extreme capitalism environment that we are looking at within vector space, hot zones, and especially the more expensive hot zones, can actually be seen more of a luxury than otherwise, than a hardship. If you can't really afford what's what you're working with, you can't really afford to have a hot zone or to get into a skiff with someone else. And when you start pushing that to extremes, especially once you get off station into a station, maybe not a blue sky, but a station, a ship, or a dome habitat, you literally cannot afford to have a hot zone because too much stray destruction, too much stray chaos will slice through that thin line of technology that's keeping you from the cold dark. And your whole habitat at that point could just blip out. That's kind of a tie. That's kind of a, a balance between resource scarcity and actual economic prosperity. I don't, I don't think I'm with you on that. Although I will, I think it's a valid interpretation. It's just maybe not mine. My understanding is that hot zones are really a place where standard economics have broken down the usual rules for trade and acquisition are not working that well. Unless it's a hot zone that's been kind of predefined and prescripted by two corporations in an obliging manner to wipe out some assets and get some fresh start going on. It's an area where someone is going to be seriously disadvantaged and likely put out of business by this process, or at least take a huge hit that they didn't want to take. Right. It's a blood game. Yes. Not quite a game. It's a little bit more serious. But it's not a pure free-for-all, no-holds-barred war. There's kind of a paradox in HSD, or maybe double standard, where the author talks about that most vectors have one life to live, uh, and they don't want to lose it. I mean, there's really great health care and such, but if you're dead, you're dead. Uh, unless you're a high-paid athlete, in which case you might be able to manage to not die. But simultaneously... There's jokes and campaign references about uh, pulse blood sports that are frequently fatal. <laughs> so I really don't have any bead on how cheap life really, how cheap life really is in HSD. It's it's very hard to tell. 
Well, let's let's just say this: there are still no debtors' prisons. <laughs> <laughs> it just just blew water up my nose. <laughs> Different tones you might take with your urban conflict. Uh, is it kind of gritty and dark, uh, Iron Age comic style? Are we looking for more heroic and noble opportunities to intervene, defuse combat situations, take care of hostages, do rescue operations? Is it a deeply hopeless and bleak scenario where your characters are kind of fighting the losing fight against a more ingrained or more powerful corporation? You could even be investing in survival horror as a concept if opportunistic scavengers and monsters take advantage of the uh, the conflict situation as well. Claustrophobic, you simultaneously dealing with claustrophobia and being too exposed. Wine's touched on that. Uh, you have the opportunity to take a valiant and possibly triumphant stand against the enemy. There's a lot of different tones you could be taking in this, and picking that apart is kind of a dialogue between you and your players. And those tones also really link up with how the hot zone relates to the players. There's going to be three kind of major arenas that you'd have. Either the players are part and parcel to the hot zone, um, in with one of the corporations, or either initiating it for their own gain or having to initiate against them. So just very much, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Alpha to the conflict. Very much involved in owning the conflict. Your players could be separate but being sent in, either as a rescue mission, an escort mission, going in to try and cool things off or heat things up. Or the hot zone could come to the players. Players didn't know anything about it until it was announced, and now they're just trying to get out. Like or natural disaster sort of scenario. Or they're in, and they're trying to take advantage of the chaos to scavenge around and loot and get out. Each of those three have very different feels and have very different relationships between how you're going to approach the citizens, the participants of the hot zone within the corporations and the players themselves. Looking at that, one kind of asks the question of how are the PCs themselves seen when they're on the battlefield? If they're mercenaries, are they working with the good guys, whatever those are? If there are any, are they antagonistic? Are you dealing with like a brother against brother scenario? One one fun thing to do, particularly when you're dealing with positive public image corporations like Progenitus, is to go into a rescue mission or go into liberate some people and then find out that, well, this is actually a progenitus takeover situation and you're really not playing with the nice guys at this point. And even if you are coming in, you're coming in as outsiders and you're coming in as outsiders when they're really stroking the fires of corporate loyalty and bonds between the different employees. I mean, are you actually coming in to help? Are you seen as coming in to help? Or are you just kind of armed bobs coming in as outside consultants to do their jobs? Even if you're working with the local friendly corporation, the people on the ground may see you as an agent of the chaos rather than a supporting actor. You may not be able to be a good guy in that scenario. But in most cases, it is a good chance for the GM to... But in most cases, it is a good chance for the storyteller to play around with some combat or play around with some of the combat scenarios where it's not no holds barred, where your party actually has to put away that fancy power armor that mm. they've picked up or has to put down their assault rifles and actually play with some low power stuff in a very complex environment instead of staying in the rut of standing back with their 
heavy armor and sniper rifles and just owning the battlefield. Right. Which you, if you have good guns, that's what you want to do. But reality doesn't always give you the luxury. And it's perfectly fine to be using those, but you want to mix it up. You don't want to mm -hmm. let the players get too comfortable with their fancy toys. Yeah. Every so often you do want to take it away. And this is a much better scenario to control the bounds of the rules of engagement than you wake up in jail and all your equipment's gone. What do you do? <laughs> Nobody likes that. Sorry. <laughs> I, I've done that at least once in my campaign. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot. <laughs> well, the martial artists love it. That's <laughs> true. So does the exhibitionists. Some potential enemies you might be facing on the battlefield. You've got your standard hired mercenaries in the shape of rival companies or people from your company. Um, this is kind of generic mall cop style people. You have the IRPF forces as well, which I know we've joked about being kind of mall cop agents in this, in this podcast, but I think there's a lot of potential for IRPF to be placed against IRPF in these scenarios. And you, you don't know what, what of your old acquaintances are going to be on the opposing side of a, a street shootout. The mall cop with a heart of gold <laughs> and a 45. <laughs> And what are they called? What are the things that mall cops ride? Those silly two-wheeled things. Oh. Segway. Segways, yes. Segway with a pintle-mounted gun. <laughs> Desperate employees, also fine antagonists. These might be people that you have to subdue as a part of your character's uh, combat action. These might be sympathetic people that are fighting against the concept of violence in their small town. This might simply be the other corporation's mercenaries or downtrodden staff or baristas or HR department. But that's fine if you're fighting against the HR department. I say show no mercy. <laughs> or, or a colonel in your own organization who's gone rogue and founded his, his a religion based on himself that you have to track him down, deal with him. So we're playing Scion for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I've titled the campaign Heart uh, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Another potential antagonist that's Gently nightmarish, uh, you could be facing alien life forms in these scenarios because nothing adds to chaos like whispers, blood demons, outside forces, xeno, what do you call those bug brain, brain bugs? Xenomorphs? No. Exonymphs. Exonymphs, yeah. Right. Or things the Game Master has made up. I suppose that a really intense military scenario opens the way for Vitae um, demons as well. All sorts of fun things. It's not really overtly stated, but it's fully within style that that type of, call it psychic chaos, would be the type of thing that would attract, be it the whispers or some of the cross-dimensional type stuff. Oh, absolutely. Sure. If supernatural is a strong element in your campaign, it's almost required. Uh, citizen activists and guerrilla action, both fun. Rogue agents on kind of shadow actions, opportunistic looters, etc., etc. People that are engaged in their own acquisitions and attacks that are totally unrelated to the combat at hand, except to use it as a useful cover. Yeah. Or pretext. And let's not forget that you now have two corporations that are uniquely vulnerable. This is the perfect opportunity for a third party to get in the mix and mess up everybody's day. Sir, third parties had never been covered in the books. Except the VCs. I'm, I meant a different corporation. Oh, so, you know, when um, Starbucks and 
Happy Time Donuts are hashing it out over who's going to be the breakfast of champions. Hashing. You got that. <laughs> that this is the perfect time for uh, Burgermania to stomp their way in and establish some actual new ground. I feel sure. that would go against the delicate rules of bloodshed that are established by the uh, Hot Zone rules. Wait, Between the two, two original combatants. Someone's going to pay an extra fee. So a short, a short list of some kind of standard conflict scenarios you might be running through. Uh, the rescue the hostage scenario, espionage, shadow ops, um, the escape from L.A. type structure. Donuts. Mm. Tacos. Donuts. <laughs> tacos. You are not distracting me from my list with your donut or propaganda. The party's corporation is, why not both? <laughs> uh, holding the fort or protecting a target from opponent forces. Uh, gathering intel, always fun. Uh, relationship sabotage or uh, Yelp warfare. Negotiating with local powers, rallying the troops. Anyway, yap, yap, yap. Noble death. So many different opportunities for that. Mm -hmm. Left tricks. Right tricks. Huh? As in, as in the serial? I, I'm lost. Did I horribly misquote that? I might have horribly misquoted I that. I have no idea what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> left tracks? Left checks? Tricks. As in the screw Tricks. Twix. Twix. Oh! Oh, well, like the cookies that you break in half. Google apparently doesn't know either. I don't know. I'm, Maybe I'm crazy. I think so. A little bit of Fox Madness. Wow. Google, come on. GM stuff. Uh, let's talk about building your uh, conflict scenarios. No, let's go back to this Twix thing for just a second. The, <laughs> the, the candy bars, the little candy bar fingers with the cookie fingers with the caramel on them okay. and the chocolate over that. Okay, I got it. Yeah, they come in little two-packs. Sure, sure. Like their their ad campaign right now is one of the two-pack comes from the left factory, the left Twix. The other one comes from the right factory, the right Twix. So it's like a political divide? And it's just like two different factories that are in opposition, but it's total nonsense because everyone knows they're just the same cookie, two per package. Mm. So, so, so I know I'm getting old because I, I, I don't know, have any clue what you're talking about. These, so, these are not new things. The Montagues and the Capulets, <laughs> as represented by very small pieces of chocolate dipped cookies. Yes. Chocolate caramel fingers, because they're sticks. This is a, <laughs> this is a weird tangent, Ashtar. If you weren't so enthusiastic, I'd, I'd, I'd be... Can, can, we, can we return to Cinder here? Center, rather... <laughs> Fine, how about this one? Tastes great. Less filling. Okay, okay, that's an old reference. I get it. 90s kids, come on. Yeah, no, I, I get that one. I studied that in college. <laughs> or, or the Cola Wars. We'll never forget the, the, the stirring stories for the Cola Wars. Y'all are really missing with the conceit of my episodes here. <laughs> yes. Come on, it's 2750. <laughs> I think the Cola Wars are still relevant to... Uh, Corporations of the future. Okay. Not my fault. I'm a professor of historical history. Uh -huh. That's the first time I heard that. <laughs> historical history. And it'll be the last. So a question a game master might want to ask themselves is, uh, who set up this conflict? Where's the money flowing? Who's benefiting from it? How do the landlords benefit? Who's going to be there to pick up all the pieces and uh, run home with them? Well, I, I think the most important question is just how does it affect the story? If the player characters, if the, the background conflict is just a kind of an environmental hazard for the for the, the players who 
aren't involved. The point is just it's a harsh, tough world. Then it doesn't matter what the conflict's over. I mean, you're just trying to survive or maybe make things a little bit better for the people who aren't involved in it. I guess I was looking at it more like a sandbox than an obstacle. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a valid point, is how important is this to your story? How many episodes are you trying to kill with it? Yeah. But all of those questions become very relevant if the player characters or their corporation either is one of the two that's part of the hot zone or they're deeply involved with one of those, where they're being brought in as external specialists or neighborhood friends, neighborhood allies. In, in terms of building the scenario and seeing how the, what the final results are going to look like, what the desired outcome for the powers that be are, I think know, knowing what the, bot- what the proposed bottom line is is going to be helpful. That is not the same as what is the fun enjoyment for your PCs, for your players is going to be. Mm-hmm. Although now I feel like all of the other bullet points I have coming on my sheets of paper are uh, trivial and shallow. So thank you so much. <laughs> Glad to help. <laughs> thank you, Wines. Well, we are here to focus on urban warfare. First question, what about the puppies? <laughs> <laughs> Whose side are they on? <laughs> Ultimately, in the, in the structure of the hot zone, both sides are likely to have things that they expect to gain or expect to lose more likely. And neither is necessarily seeking out aggression or armed conflict. But what will push them there is, is kind of another valid point. Is the corporation, the low dog, are they so desperate to hold on to their land that they will go to the point of bloodshed and bullets for it? Are they going to cut and run and leave the assets for the plunder? These are useful in knowing how the end game is going to play out. Actually, let's unpack that one a little bit more because that is really a very low level, a subtle point, but a very important one. Because if we're looking around, I mean, if you work at the local burger flipping place and you come in one day and the burger flipping place has shut down and there's no boss to be seen, you don't open it back up and defend it with your life. Grab the knives, grab the guns. It's, uh, well, okay, my job shut down. That sucks. I guess I'll go look for a new one. Well, the ripple effects of all the people that have uh, stock percolating through their ledgers in this company, that also is a factor. Right, but it's still a fairly far cry from, oh, okay, this enterprise is shutting down or it's been bought out or it's no longer operational to violence. That's true. I think making all the jokes about Starbucks versus Donut Beast has kind of lends this a little bit bigger and more ridiculous than it might be. Most people working in a restaurant are not going to go do war for their restaurant. Uh, This sort of scenario might be better served for people where the corporation is their city, is their home. And that might be more relevant analogy or comparison point than what is my job? What is my, you know, (laughs) is this my favorite store or is this my personal identity? When your life's work is tied into a research center or a hospital, something like that, suddenly that does cut a little bit closer if you're the subject of a hostile takeover. At that point, it's not just economic downfall or an economic buyout that you're looking at that literally could be the destruction or the theft of decades of your life. And that starts approaching a much better motivation for that type of defend the turf with violence um, activity. And... If we're looking at a hot zone, there's something that is interfering with real diplomacy taking place. Someone has dug their heels in. Maybe one company's demands are far too high, like Ashtar was just suggesting. Or maybe they have 
deeply incompatible philosophies, uh, progenitus versus TTI scenario or um, no kill animal shelter versus murder them all animal shelter. I don't know. <laughs> or much more likely middle management propaganda, but we're not supposed to be quite that cynical. Not all of the time. <laughs> and the hot zone might originally have been simply an ultimatum uh, that was pushed too far. We don't know. Or it might just be a useful smoke screen for some behind the tail, de- behind the counter, un- behind the curtain, under the table deals. <laughs> mm-hmm. And all the bloodshed in the streets are not nearly as important as whatever's happening in the two boardrooms. The downside of knowing a vector's worth to the scent. <laughs> <laughs> Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You know, you can have the hostile takeover and you can exceed the you can exceed the hostile takeover to a higher level. Sorry, you can have your hostile bagel. <laughs> your hostile bagel. Got it. Hostile bagel. We, we are back to breakfast. <laughs> the blooper reel is going to be rich this episode. <laughs>